Here we go. You're listening to Law & Gospel Open Mic Friday on this October the 8th in the year of our Lord, 2021. I'm Pastor Tom Baker. And what we do on Open Mic Friday, we respond to emails that are sent to me. And you can send me an email at lawandgospel at lawandgospel101.com. Tom. And it's started with, to the guru of law gospel. Last month, our circuit pastors conference wrestled with a statement from Walther's Law and Gospel. We're working through the book as a group study. That's a great book to go through. In the 22nd evening lecture, he writes, the Lutheran confessions offer to poor sinners this sweet comfort that when God has given them the grace to be alarmed on account of their sins, they are in a fit condition to approach the throne of grace where they receive forgiveness, the true remedy for their ills. Is this mixing law and gospel? Is Walther wrong here where he says, that they are given grace to be alarmed on account of their sins. Is this the same error that led to the elimination of the stanza from Amazing Grace? Twas grace that caused my heart to fear. Isn't it the law that alarms? Or is this grace used here in somewhat the same way we talk about the gospel in the broad sense? Even so, Grace used in two different senses within the same sentence or something else. Would appreciate your input to our discussion. Okay, it's not at all unusual that the same word in the Bible can be used twice in one verse with totally different meanings. For example, in Romans, when Paul is talking about that not all Israel is of Israel, well, you have the word Israel twice. But the first word Israel is referring to the Jewish people. The second word Israel is referring to the Holy Christian Church. And what Paul is saying is that not all Jews are also part of the Holy Christian Church. Same word, different meanings. However, I think the word grace doesn't necessarily have to be a different word. When John the baptizer did his repent because the Lord Jesus Christ is coming, Remember, he was the preparer for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He prepared people. Now, how did he prepare them? Well, as he said, I baptize you with water, but the one coming after me will baptize you also with the Holy Spirit. And what is the gift of the Holy Spirit? Well, according to Peter's little sermon at Pentecost, the gift of the Holy Spirit also includes the forgiveness of sins. So John the baptizer was preparing people 
to receive the gift of the forgiveness of sins. So he would name sins that they were doing, what soldiers were doing, what other people were doing, and they repented of those sins and were washed in John's baptism. That was a ceremonial baptism because they now recognize that they needed the gift of the forgiveness of sins, which Jesus, the Lamb of God, who John said was coming to take away the sins of the world, that he was appearing. Now, remember, a number of the leaders in Judaism did not agree at all with John the baptizer. They did not repent of their sins. But a large number of people did. And so it is not wrong to indicate that those who repented of their sins did so through the Holy Spirit granting them the knowledge that they were sinners. And that is an act of grace. God gives them such grace so that they can be alarmed on account of their sins. And therefore, they are in a fit condition to desire to approach the throne of grace where they receive forgiveness. When Jesus begins his ministry in the gospel according to St. Mark, remember what he says? I have come to preach repentance and the gospel, the good news of the forgiveness of sins. So getting a person to acknowledge their sins is also a work of the Holy Spirit. They don't deserve to recognize that they're acknowledging their sins, but the Holy Spirit gives them that attitude. Now they can still reject it, as some did, like the unbelieving Pharisees. But I would not have a problem with C.F.W. Walther talking about it as an act of grace that God came and made them aware of their sinful condition. All right, next email. Dear Pastor Baker, my husband and I have been listening to your program for many years, and you have opened our understanding to so much in God's word. I pray that you can help us now and give us guidance in a spiritual situation we find ourselves in today. My husband and I have read all we could find in the book of Concord and on the LCMS website. Our sadness and heartache come from believing that we should not stay in and support this congregation of which we are members. We will be leaving behind many hurt people who will not understand. I don't have the privilege of explaining it to them. Can you help us so we can find peace? Do you believe this is what our Lord would have us do? Thank you for any help and guidance you can give us. God bless KFUO 
in all the work you do for our Lord and Savior. Now, in answer to this, the email does not indicate what particular denomination they're a member of in the congregation in which they are members. So here's what I would say. If they're not in a Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod congregation, but another church like Baptist that doesn't believe in baptism of children or some Reformed churches that don't believe it's the true body and blood of Christ in the sacrament, then it is necessary that you be fed with the pure word of God. In fact, a Hebrews passage for this coming week, which is very good, talks about that we should listen to what the word of God says, because that's how we find out what God's will is for us. So God does not want us to be a member of a congregation and supporting it that has clearly false teaching. I want to be careful. I'm not saying that the people in that congregation are all going to hell. No, that's going to be up to God as to whether or not what they doubt about the Bible or disagree with is worthy of hell or whether they can still go to heaven. For example, I don't believe that because Roman Catholics believe they can pray to Mary, that that means they're going to hell since they do believe that their sins were forgiven at the cross by Jesus Christ. So there are distinctions in errors. Fundamental errors means you could lose your faith. Non-fundamental errors are simply errors in the Bible. For example, I bet there are a lot of people, even in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, who have been caught up in the error of evolution, that God created the world through evolution, not in six 24-hour days. Uh, by the way, that is decimated after God creates a woman from the rib of Adam. What does Adam say? This is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, and she is fit to be with Adam. So she couldn't come from a monkey because that would not be bones of a human being. And anybody who tells you that Adam and Eve came about through becoming human from a monkey or anywhere else, they're a false teacher. And you should not therefore believe what they say about other things to test them out. Now, if you are a member of the congregation, and it's Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. It appears that you found things in the Book of Concord and the LCMS website that appear to be different than what your pastor is saying. If you're going to leave, I would visit with the pastor ahead of time and tell him your concerns over what he is teaching and listen to him. It could be that you are mistaken 
in what he is teaching, and he's really teaching proper theology. He's just not coming across that way to you. But if you find out, as happened in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that we had a whole number of pastors and professors who were denying the word of God. I had a professor at Concordia Seminary, Missouri Synod, and he did not believe the devil existed. I had another professor who did not believe that Jesus rose bodily, that his body could still be found in the grave. And therefore, he accused me of worshiping the Bible rather than worshiping Jesus because I said, boy, my faith would be destroyed if it became obvious that Jesus' body was still in the grave and had not risen from the dead. So those are my suggestions as to whether you're in a non-LCMS church or an LCMS church. Talk a bit to the pastor, and if you need to leave, you need to leave. And yes, this may mean that a lot of people that you know, you will lose as friends. Jesus lost a lot of disciples when he taught. He had disciples following him. And then he says, I am the bread of life. And you need to eat my body and drink my blood. And there were disciples who could not understand that. And they left Jesus. So Jesus wasn't afraid to speak the word of God, even though it meant that some of his friends would no longer be friends. Okay, next email. Hi, and they're referring to the Bible verse to take up your cross. Could you help me understand this scripture? Is it a call to live a daily repentance? Could the request take up your cross means take up Jesus, whose death on the cross is our cross? Uh, thank you for your answer. All right. When Jesus says take up your cross, he's not using the word cross literally in that upon which he was crucified. He's not asking you to be crucified. But the word cross here means any suffering, any grief, especially coming from Satan. For example, Satan may blame you for not being a perfect person. You sin daily. And he may use that sin to give you the impression, well, you're not going to go to heaven. Well, you can take up your cross and believe the promises of Jesus against the nonsense of Satan. A lot of times the cross we need to pick up. If you look at the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Now, why would we be blessed? Because in the midst of persecution, it's like a child who is kind of independent, but he's three or four years old, 
And one night he's in bed and there's a big thunderstorm and he becomes afraid. And so he calls to his parents and they come and comfort him. They may even bring him into their room where he can also sleep. See, that's a way in which the parents have helped him take up the cross of fear that he has. Yes, it means to believe the promises that Jesus never leaves you nor forsakes you. You may have some tremendous temptations, for example, but 1 Corinthians 10, 13 makes it clear that God never sends you a temptation beyond what you're able to resist as you turn to Jesus for help. That is taking up your cross in believing the words of Jesus. Next email. Reverend Baker, we are trying to develop a funeral policy for our LCMS church. Now, they're not talking about the church is dying and how they can put it to rest. No, they're talking about funerals in the church. There are a couple of questions that have come up among the committee members, and we would like some outside input. What is the difference between having a funeral in the church or the funeral home? I don't see any difference, but there could be differences. Uh, for example, I take care of four congregations right now, and one of them had a funeral, but there were more people coming than we expected could fit into the church. So the funeral home had the worship service. It was a full worship service at the funeral home. Uh, we had someone playing the organ there, and we gave the comfort that needed to come. And nobody complained, well, this is a funeral home. This isn't a church. No, it was not necessary to be in a church. However, there are some times when you would have the funeral in the funeral home rather than in the church. For example, I'll visit a member of ours in the hospital, and at that time, there was another person in a bed in the same room. And after saying a little Bible study and a prayer for my member, that other person said, I've never heard what you said about this Jesus forgiving sins. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? And I'd go over and talk to him about that and have a prayer for him. And it certainly appeared that he was willing to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit had given him that will. Well, that night, he tells his family about what I had said. And that night, he also dies. I get a call from the family, and they would like me to do his funeral. But he doesn't belong to any church. Now, I, I don't personally have a problem in bringing him to the church 
that I was pastor of, but a lot of the people would say, well, if you have it in your church, there are some people who just don't want to come to a church. So we would have it in the funeral home. The same message, the same word of comfort, and there would be more people who would come to the funeral home. So you usually allow the person to make the decision, but it's good that a pastor would talk to his membership and they should make up, especially if they're aged and near death, how they would like the funeral service to go. Like what hymns would they like to be sung? What Bible verse? I often do the Bible verse that would be the confirmation verse. And of course, it's wonderful to have it in the church. But my first funeral that I ever had when I became a pastor is an individual was in a pot because he had been exhumed. And that was done at the funeral home. So I don't have a problem with either the church or the funeral home. The email goes on. Should we be more concerned with the expired person's attributes? That means their characteristics of their life. Being as they have departed and are probably in eternity with or without God. Or should we be more concerned with showing Christian love and comfort to the family and friends of our church? I don't really see a proper distinction there because the way that a funeral worship service gives comfort to the family is to demonstrate that the person is in heaven, not on the basis of their attributes, their behavior, but on the basis of their faith. I have declined to do funerals where I have no evidence that the person is a Christian. So just because members of his family may be members of my church doesn't mean that I'm going to do the funeral for him when he dies if he has indicated that he's an atheist and doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. So it's not the expired person's attributes that I work on to give comfort to people. In fact, I said in one funeral service about a sister, and her sister was in the worship service. She was Roman Catholic. And I talked about the sister who died was a poor, miserable sinner. She deserved nothing but temporal and eternal punishment. And her living sister got angry with me. And she says, no, my sister did not deserve temporal and eternal punishment. So I tried to explain to her that all of us are sinners. All of us deserve temporal and eternal punishment but her sister is in heaven, not because of her behavior, but because of the works of Jesus Christ, who died forgiving her sins and having heaven as her home. Now, I was not able to convince her 
But believe it or not, she visited a Roman Catholic priest who lived near her, and he said the same thing I said. And she wrote me a letter and apologized because she understood now what both of us are saying. Question, if one spouse is saved and the other is not and dies, is there anything in Scripture to keep the funeral from proceeding in the church? Is there anything in doctrine to keep the funeral from proceeding? Well, I would say that if the person who died is the unbeliever, there should be no funeral because there is no basis of comfort and hope. I've listened to you over the Internet in the past and found you to be very insightful and refreshing. We are just starting this process, and any help you give us would be appreciated. Thank you in advance for your time. And those are the kind of emails we love to attempt to answer of situations in the church that people are wondering, what way should we go? And make sure that on this committee is your pastor. I'm Tom Baker. Monday's Long Gospel will be dealing with a Bible passage for the following Sunday. And we will look at it from a law and gospel point of view. Thank you for listening to Law and Gospel. Tell your friends about it. God bless you. Listen to Law and Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law and Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.